you, Bree. Great song to set us up. Let's bow and ask the Lord to teach us today. There's a great command and promise in the scripture regarding the Lord's day. Found in Isaiah 58, it says this, if you will keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing whatever you want on my holy day. But instead, if you will call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, listen to this promise. And if you honor it, not by going your own way or doing as you please, but by, or by speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land. What we know today is that God's people are not commanded to keep all the different Jewish details of the Sabbath, but the Sabbath principle going all the way back to Genesis of stopping one day in seven is a command, and it's a gift to God's people to cease their normal rhythm, recharge, worship, and rest. Father, we thank you for this gift. We thank you for a Lord's Day. We thank you for an incredibly beautiful Lord's Day today. Thank you for this tent. We thank you for each person that's come. We thank you, Father, for your word. In a very confusing, messed up planet, we thank you. We have a clear word from heaven, a word of truth, a word of love, a word of challenge, a word of rebuke, a word that leads us back to you if we surrender and obey Jesus. Father, teach us today as we talk about our, the great adversary of your people, the leader of the armies against your people. Help us to be humble, wise, help us to have ears to hear. And for those here who are unsaved, Father, we pray you would open their blinded eyes to their need for Jesus and salvation and rescuing from hell and the evil one. For those who are saved, Father, would you open our eyes and ears and help us to be wise in how we combat our enemy. We pray this in his name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel, the Old Testament, chapter 28. As you do that, I want to make a brief pastoral plea. Uh, next weekend, we move inside, Lord willing, and we have a couple ministry needs in our children's department for second hour, not first hour, but our second hour. We meet, have two times, 9 and 1045, and... We need specifically to staff where we want to be by next Sunday for second hour. We need four adults to do a couple things. We need two adults in our preschool Sunday school program. That would be ages about, uh, where's Heather? Two and three? Three and four. I see that hand. Thank you. Three and four. So this is ages three and four. That's our preschool Sunday school. We need two adults still. And that involves an application process and an interview. You can see our, our children's ministry director back there, Heather Sukup. And then also we need two adults for our fourth and fifth grade Sunday school class, second hour. So we need four adults. We have lots of people here, lots of gifts. That again would involve an application and an interview process. But we ask you to consider that if you're not involved serving, uh, and you are born again, and you're not involved in the local church, we need you. And we need to put priority on our kids and our young people. So 
Those four adults are needed for next weekend, second hour. Ezekiel 28. This morning we're in the third part of a series, Angels and Demons. And this weekend we come to the leader, the prince of demons, someone the Bible calls Satan. The plan is to do a uh, to dig into the text and attempt to construct a, a biography of Satan, so to speak. And the goal is for God's people to understand the enemy of God's people and his strategies. First Peter 5, 8 puts it this way. It says, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Very sobering passage. We're going to divide our time into three parts. First, we're going to look at the rebellion of Satan. Then we're going to look at the strategy of Satan. And then thirdly, the end game for Satan. There's a lot of scripture. I'm going to be moving at a very crisp pace. And I hope that you have access to your Bible. You're going to be wanting to look at this. As always, this will be online afterwards. But there's nothing quite like doing it together live. And so let's dig into Scripture. First of all, I'm going to dive into the rebellion of Satan. And let me first of all talk about the title Satan, or Hebrew word Satan. Uh, it is used a, a little over 50 times in our Hebrew Bible in the, in the Old Testament. The word can mean a couple things. It can mean adversary or accuser. There's a number of ways you can... Is, so somebody who's opposed to you, uh, the opposer, actually in Hebrew, Satan is not really a personal name. It's more of a title. And we know that because it usually comes with the definite article in Hebrew, the, with a Hebrew letter, ha, hey. So you got ha, satan. This is the way it is used in Job 1 and in Zechariah 3. Let me just give you an example. Zechariah 3, 1 reads this way. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and this is exactly the way it reads in Hebrew and English and the Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So it's more of a title of somebody who is an adversary or an accuser. In the New Testament though, interestingly, the word Satan becomes almost exclusively a personal name. And I say that because when Jesus addresses him, when they're one-on-one, -on -one, for example, in the desert or somewhere, Jesus actually will call him Satan, a little bit analogous to the word Christ, if you're familiar. Jesus, you know, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's Jesus, Jesus Christos. It's Jesus the Christ, Christ being the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. But by the time you get towards the preaching of the apostles, it almost becomes at times a, a, a proper name, Jesus Christ. Paul will pray that way. So it's a title and a name. And the same thing with Satan. It's more of a title in the Old Testament and becomes more of a name in the New Testament. We saw this morning, as Pastor Tim read, Matthew 4, away from me, Satan. There's no definite article there. Just away from me, Satan. Or in Matthew 16, Jesus rebuking Peter, and he says to the spirit behind Peter, get behind me, Satan. He addresses him directly by name. Interesting, the Dead Sea Scrolls mention Satan as the leader of the evil forces. These are the, this is how he's mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Eater, leader of the evil forces and the attacker of the righteous. 
That is also what Satan means, attacker, adversary, accuser. One of the biggest questions about Satan, and the reason we're in Ezekiel 28 this morning, is because God's people have asked for centuries, how, why did this being turn evil? How did he go to the dark side? And the answer is nobody really knows. There have been some very interesting speculations, some of the best, I think, from St. Augustine. The context of Ezekiel 28 gives us a hint. In fact, there's two texts we're going to look at this morning. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Both are interesting passages of Scripture because both are announcing woes. Uh, the, the woe in Hebrew is a very strong woe. Both are announcing woes against human kings. One, the king of Tyre, which is modern-day Lebanon. The other, the king of Babylon, modern-day Iraq. These were evil, wicked kings. Prophets are denouncing them. But as they're denouncing them, it's very interesting. The language they use goes beyond the human king. I was looking at one commentator this week said, well, they're comparing the king to Satan. That's not even the language here. There is a being, a force behind the king that is being addressed throughout the rebuke. And I want to show you both in Ezekiel 28 and in Isaiah 14. Both prophets use this kind of language of addressing the king, a direct rebuke of the king of Tyre, the king of Babylon, but then there's, there's clearly addressing someone through the king who's behind the king and empowering the king. And it's very clear this is probably Satan himself. First of all, Ezekiel 28 verses 11, I'm going to pick up reading in 11 through 13. There's a series, we're in a series of uh, laments and prophecies here against the king of Tyre. And by the time you get chapter 28, you have this direct rebuke of the king of Tyre. Again, this would be roughly modern day Lebanon. The word of the Lord came to me, verse 11. Son of man, that's Ezekiel, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him. So God telling Ezekiel, this is how you're going to rebuke the king of Tyre. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Now listen to the language. This is a rebuke of a human king. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. And he mentions a number of the stones and emeralds. Drop down to verse 14. The language even gets more mysterious. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God and walked among the fiery stones. Look at verse 15, first phrase. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Now, verse 13, you were in Eden. King of Tyre was never in Eden. Verse 14, you were anointed as a guardian cherub, which is an angelic creature. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways. If you go down to verse 17, it says simply this, your heart became proud on the account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. I threw you to the earth and I made a spectacle of you before all kings. So again, we have a rebuke of a human king, but the language here is very clearly talking to someone behind and empowering this king. The language, really, when you look at the individual phrases, only fit one creature, and that would be Satan himself. 
Similar passage is found in Isaiah 14. If you go back to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 14. Again, you have a rebuke of a human king. This is a different king. You're really looking at the same story of the fall of Satan from two different perspectives. One through the king of Tyre. This one through the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. But the language again goes way past Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to read verses 12 to 14. And we get another glimpse of Satan's original rebellion. And this is the passage, by the way, where we get the name Lucifer for Satan. It's the only time he's called this. Isaiah 12, I mean, uh, chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, starting in verse 12. This is a rebuke of Nebuchadnezzar through the prophet Isaiah. You have fall, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You've been laid low among the nations. You said in your heart, now again, this to a human king. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did say that. Above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Here we have words that more conform to a human king. But again, it looks like, and Old Testament scholars seem to agree, he's talking to someone beyond and behind the king. Verse 12, by the way, Notice it says the morning star. Interesting in light of what Paul says about Satan being an angel of light. But the Latin Vulgate, verse 12, the Latin Vulgate translates the Hebrew here, morning star, Lucifer. That comes from the Latin. Interestingly, in Dutch, that's the word for match. Just a normal match. It's a light and heat. Now the question is this. And notice the five I wills, by the way. I'm going to look at these. But let me give you the question that I want to notice the five I wills again. What in the world would Lucifer hope to gain by rebelling against God? He clearly knows God's far more powerful than him. What would Lucifer have to gain by rebelling against him? Let me look at the five I wills. Look at the five I wills, starting in verse 13. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly. I will ascend above the tops. I will make myself like the Most High. The only answer we can possibly give is this. Lucifer craved independence. He craved recognition. In short, ladies and gentlemen, young people, he wanted to be his own God. That's what all rebellion is about. All rebellion is wanting to undock yourself, unhitch yourself from God's authority and be your own authority. It's plain and simple. People do it all the time. We do it in life when it comes to morality. We do it with the scriptures. I don't like what the Bible says here, so I'm going to make up my own meanings. We do this constantly, sometimes intentionally, a lot of times unintentionally. We have personal blinders. We have sin blinders. We have cultural blinders. And we end up wanting to do our own thing, which means this. Hear this. At the core of any rebellion against what God has said on anything, at the core of that is a deep, angry, twisted exaltation of self. It's either God's word in me or it's me in God's word. At the core of all rebellion, all walking away from God is a deep, angry, twisted exaltation of self. Does it have any hope of going anywhere? What do you think? No. But sin is insanity. You don't think of that in the midst of rebellion at all. 
Now, having said all of this, before we get into the strategy of Satan, let me just give you three important reminders about him. Number one, God is all-powerful. He is. Satan is not. God created Lucifer. A lot of times when you listen to Christians talk, it almost sounds like a dualistic universe. We have two equal and opposite powers, God and Satan. That isn't even close to true. Next Sunday's sermon is entitled, The Devil is God's Devil, phrase most likely uttered by Martin Luther, the great German that we sang a song here from this morning. Satan serves the living God. He will be disposed of by the living God. He was created by the living God, and God is far more powerful than Satan. Number two, Satan is not omnipresent. What's that mean? If you listen again to Christians, the way we talk, you will hear that very commonly, Satan did this to me, Satan did that to me, Satan this, Satan that. A lot of times we know what each other means, but Satan can't be everywhere at once. He is a single solitary being, no different than any other angel, no different than any other human being. He cannot be in Belfast, Boston, Belgium, Brazil, Bolivia, and Budapest all at the same time. <laughs> he can't. He can only be in one place at one time. He is an individual solitary being who has an army of demons. And the third thing, let me just give this third qualifier. All of life can't be boiled down to, well, if something bad happens to me, it's Satan, and if something good happens to me, it's God. That's a very contemporary error. If you go back and read the Puritans, they're very clear. It's sometimes they would say it's very hard to tell who's attacking me, God or Satan. Who's appointed this affliction, God or Satan? Scriptures are more complicated than just if it's unpleasant, it's Satan, and if it's pleasant, it's God. Peter says this about God appointing suffering to his people, 1 Peter 4.19. So then, listen to this, in case you've been duped by the prosperity gospel, those who suffer according to God's will, what's the text say? Those who suffer according to whose will? To God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Christians suffer for lots of reasons. Sometimes it's our own sin. Sometimes it's our own foolishness. Sometimes we suffer simply because we're on a fallen planet that's under disease and pestilence and a curse. Sometimes we suffer because of the result of demonic influence. Sometimes because God has appointed affliction. Sometimes it may be a combination of all of the above. So this is just helping us think more accurately about our enemy. All right, let's dive into number two, strategies of Satan, strategy of Satan. We're going to look at four strategies, at least four in the Bible. These are interesting. They're compelling. And we need to approach these humbly. Number one, Satan is the father of lies. Genesis chapter 3. Go back to Genesis 3 with me. Jesus is the one who used this phrase, John 8, 44. He said, Satan is the father of lies. The earliest example, the very earliest example shows up right in the front of the Bible. Some of you know your Bibles very well. You've walked with God for years. You know this passage extremely well. But this, quite honestly, we forget. We have people sitting with us every week. This is new stuff. This is brand new material. So for all of us, good to go back and look at what the text says. Genesis 3, we have the first mention of the devil in the Bible. And he is already breathing out lies. Doing exactly what Jesus said. He's the father of lies. Verse 1 introduces us. Now, interestingly, Satan's name or title is not used here. The only way we know that the serpent is connected to Satan isn't until you get to the last book of the Bible. 
in Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20 where Satan is called that great ancient serpent, clearly reaching back into Genesis. So we do know this is the devil, but we don't know that until you get to the last book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty. It's a Hebrew word that means shrewd, calculating, or scheming. It's not a positive word. <laughs> now the serpent was more crafty. Notice his three-pronged strategy. I would encourage you to write this down. Number one, thinking of Satan as the father of lies. He comes to the original couple. There was a real Adam and a real Eve. God made them. They did not evolve from apes or ape-like ancestors or Australopithecus. They came from God, the hand of God, directly in the Garden of Eden. There was a very first biological couple. And Satan came to them. And he said these words. Notice his strategy. Did God really say? So what's the first thing he does? He undermines God's word. The very, notice this. The very first time Satan opens his mouth, he puts a question mark where God put a period. Because God back in chapter 2 had said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Oh, there's one you should not. Don't eat from that one. Do not eat from that one or you will die, period. Satan comes along and says, did God really say that? He put a question mark where God had put a period. That's never stopped as a strategy for people who want to mangle God's word. Secondly, he undermines God's word. Secondly, Satan distorts who God is. Look at 3.1. Did God say you can't eat any from any tree in the garden? Did Satan say that? Well, go back to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Always good to go back and look at the text. Chapter 2, verse 16 to 17. The Lord God commanded the man. Here was the original command. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. That sounds like a God of grace and abundance. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's only one tree in the midst of what we don't know how many trees are there, but obviously if God created this and it was perfect, there was ab abundance for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So did God say you couldn't eat it from any tree in the garden? That's what Satan quotes him as saying. Again, back to verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, excuse me, did God really say you can't eat from any of this stuff? What a dingy God. So he undermines the word of God. Secondly, he distorts who God is. And thirdly, in most evil, he accuses God of deception. Look at verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, I mean, here, here, here's, this is what you do when you're deceiving people. You, you draw them into dialogue and you start practicing verbal manipulation on them, which is lying. You may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. This is Eve. He, no, he said we could eat from the fruit in the trees. But God did say you can't eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not eat from it or you'll die. So she gets the quote accurately. And then notice the devil 
comes and accuses God of deception. You, verse 4, verse four will not certainly die. He not only contradicts God, he accuses God of deception. So God says, if you eat it, you're going to die. The serpent says, you're not going to die. So would you please note, ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, would you please note something? The one who comes to deceive, what's the end of doing? The one who comes to deceive accuses God of deception. As you start unpacking these first four verses, the deception is everywhere. And it's a very intentional strategy by the evil one. And also notice verse 6, something very haunting. Every true Christian, I know not everyone here is a true Christian, but if you are here this morning and you know Christ, and you're in Christ, would you please notice verse 6. Eve ignores what God has said, sins by eating from the tree. What is she doing when doing that? She is choosing to believe that sin is a better choice than what God has said. That, ladies and gentlemen, that young people is deadly. That's exactly what Eve is doing. She even quoted him, right? She said, well, this is what God said. And then she goes right around, believes the devil, and gives in. And in doing that, it's clear she chooses to believe that sin is a better choice. The bottom line, Satan is the father of lies. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, he's at work all the time. He's at work in our family with lies. He's at work in our church, in our churches with lies. He's at work in our culture and on the world stage with lies. He breathes out, his demons breathe this out. And we, those of you who are parents, grandparents, we need to help our kids. We need to help our grandkids, our nieces and our nephews see the lies of the world. See the lies that are breathed out in history. Because not only is there a lot of lying going on all around us all the time, but history is full of lies. And one of the things when you do discipling of your children is help them connect the dots and see the lies of history. Like the lies of the Nazis calling the cremation ovens of Auschwitz bathhouses. That was a very intentional strategy. Nazis did that all the time. Verbal language wars, I call them, where they would manipulate language and make it say the exact opposite of what they intended. Lies of liberal theologians over the centuries, that the Bible is not trustworthy, that there's no one path to God. You can go to a lot of mainline seminaries today, and you will run into liberal theologians that say that all the time. Well, this doesn't mean what it says. It couldn't be accurate. We can't take the Bible literally. There's no one path to God. The Bible isn't trustworthy. And on and on the lies go. Men and women trained in those seminaries then go into pulpits and mislead people. Lies bearing down right now in our own culture on us. The lie that a baby in the womb is not fully human. That's a lie of the evil one. A lie that abortion is some kind of a constitutional right. We've been hearing that a lot this week. I went and read the 14th Amendment this week. I can't find abortion in the 14th Amendment at all. Constitution says nothing about abortion. Or the lie that you can change your gender. Or that it's okay for two men to get married or two women to get married. The lies go on and on and on. And we said last weekend, here's the great danger. Young people, hear this. Ideas have consequences. Ideas take you someplace. 
spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and physically. And when we build our, our lives on counterfeit truth and lies, it leads to tragic consequences for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren, both in this life and the life to come. Second strategy of the devil. He accuses God's people. We're not going to turn to the book of Job, but in the book of Job, chapter 1, we read about a man named Job, not Job. He's not Job from the land of Oz. He's Job from the land of Uz. <laughs> okay. Got Job from the land of Uz, probably modern-day Jordan or Syria. And, very simple, Satan comes and accuses Job and accuses God. He accuses God of pampering Job, and then he says, and if you lift up your hand from him and quit giving him all this stuff, he'll turn against you. So he accuses God, he accuses Job. That's where we come across the title Hasatan, the, the accuser. We've already seen in Zechariah, Satan hurling accusations at people. Accusations against true Christians have been launched and are a key strategy of the devil and his demons ongoing through history. Strategy number three. This may surprise some of us, but I talked a little bit about this last week. Satan and his demons promote self-harm and suicide. This is a very intentional, insidious strategy. The strategy is that Satan and his demons often encourage people towards thoughts of and action of self-harm and even suicide. The first time, let me show you this, first time Satan shows up in the Bible, which we just looked at, what's he doing? He's telling lies about death. That's what he's doing. He's telling lies about death. How so? Well, that's very easy. He said to Eve, you will not die. In John 8, 44, what's Jesus called Satan? He says, you're a murderer from the beginning, from the beginning. Then back to Job, Job and Satan have this standoff with God in chapter 1. And Job is told or thinking about cursing God. Satan says, hey, curse God, curse God. You've, if, if, if God does this to you, you'll curse him and you'll You'll turn your back on him. What happens in chapter 2 of Job? After everything's taken away from Job, his children and his livestock and his possessions, his wife comes to him and says, curse God and what? Die. Satan's fingerprints are everywhere on that. In the Gospels, G Judas was possessed by Satan. And what did he do? He committed suicide. Again, in Matthew 4, Jesus and Satan are in this verbal sparring and the devil tells Jesus, jump off the temple. Well, that is a, with a spot where he told him to do that, 40, 50, 60 feet high. He wants Jesus to commit suicide. In Mark 5, we meet a demon-possessed man who is cutting himself, it says, with stones. In Mark 9, we meet a boy possessed by an evil spirit who keeps throwing him into the fire and into water to drown him. Example after example after example in the Bible it is very clear, a lot of Christians sort of miss this, Satan and his demons promote thoughts of and actions of self-harm and suicide. And there's ample testimony in the Bible. Lastly, fourth strategy. 
So first of all, Satan is the father of lies. Number two, Satan accuses God's people. Number three, Satan and his demons promote self-harm and suicide. And a fourth strategy we see in the Bible, this one is massive. Satan appears as an angel of light to deceive people in the false way. I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This will be our last. Oh, no, we actually have one more text after this. The best one where we see his demise. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 3. Satan appears as an angel of light to deceive people. And he does this in many, many, many ways. But a lot of the ways are through false religious systems. 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 3. But I am afraid that just as Eve, see, he, so he believed in a literal Adam and Eve, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, Paul knew Genesis chapter 3 very well. Just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds will somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's tragic. Verse 4, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, so there is another Jesus, just because someone says, I'm here in the name of Jesus, doesn't mean it's the Jesus of the Bible. If someone comes and preaches a different version of Jesus than the one we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the one we preach, or a different gospel than the one you accepted, Paul gets sarcastic, you're putting up with it easily enough. And then look at verses 13 to 15. So Satan comes to deceive and preaches a different Jesus, a different spirit. In other words, he manufactures false religious systems that entrap people. Verses 13 to 15, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ. Let me just, let me say something here. When you read a verse like that, it sounds like these kinds of people will look Self-authenticating. These will be ominous-looking people, nasty, snarling people. Often in movies, you start hearing ominous music when these kinds of people show up, right? That is not what he's talking. These kinds of people look like nice, normal human beings that live right around us all the time. These are moms and dads and kids and teenagers and pastors and clergy and teachers and that's, but he says they're, they're apostles of the devil, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, here we come, for Satan himself, again used as a proper name, masquerades as an angel of light. Masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Therein will be what their actions deserve. That means, ladies and gentlemen, young people, that even though people in false religions may be sincere, and I think most of them are very sincere, they're sincerely wrong. You're not saved. It's not righteousness, justification by sincerity. It's justification by faith alone in who? In Christ alone. By grace, so it's, it's, it's an objective faith. You have to have faith in the right object, Christ, not just in anything. 
It's not just your faith in something, not just believe in something. You can believe very passionately and be very wrong. In Proverbs 14, 12 says that there's a way that seems right to us, and in the end, it leads in death. And that death means destruction and judgment in hell. Interesting, in Galatians 1, Paul's earliest letter, where he has some of his most volcanic language, Paul uses, typically when Paul opens one of his 13 letters in the New Testament, he opens it with some kind of a grace and peace to you and how you doing, what's up, what's shaking and, you know, kind of that thing. In Galatians 1, he gets right to the rebuke because these people have been misled by a false gospel and he says this. He says, look it, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one you receive, let them be accursed. You may or may not know. Some of you know. Some of you don't. The word curse there is a very, in fact, it's one of the strongest words for a curse in the Bible. The word anathema in Greek is a very strong curse. It, he, he repeats it twice. It's a Greek word Paul uses twice right there in a couple of verses. And it means utterly devoted to God for destruction. So in light of a warning like that, very interesting. I was thinking this week as I was working on this, that Satan misleads, his demons mislead, they're angelic creatures, evil. It's chilling to remember, here's Paul saying, even if an angel shows up and preaches a different gospel, chilling to remember that two of the most aggressive false religions on our planet, Islam and Mormonism, both are said to have begun by angelic revelation. Joseph Smith, angel Moroni, Muhammad, the angel Gabriel, he said. And yet, when you look at what was supposedly revealed by these two angels, it's demonic. It is the exact opposite of what God has said. Doesn't mean Mormons and Muslims are mean people or not. Becky and I know many Mormons and Muslims. We've had them in our home. We've been in their homes. Some of them are some of the most kind, decent, generous people. But that's not what saves you. What saves you is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Satan appears as an angel light to deceive people. All right, the end game for Satan. Let's go to the best news, chapter 20 of Revelation at the end of the book. Always good to sneak a look at the end of the book. I've joked before that my wife and I have a different strategy in reading novels. She is an English major. She thinks my strategy is demonic. <laughs> First time I read, read Lord of the Rings, I, opened, you know, I was like, good heavens, this is huge. Where is this thing going? So I went all the way to the end just to see what happens. Like, okay, I like where it ends. I'll start at the beginning. <laughs> That's not a bad strategy. It's, it's biblical. <laughs> I know some of you consider that perverse, but I think it's a biblical strategy anyways. <laughs> Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. Here is the end game for the devil. When the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to number them for battle. In number, they are like sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire comes down from heaven and devoured them. And ladies and gentlemen, everyone here, would you please look at verse 10. And the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the end game for Satan and his demons. He knows that. He can read English. He can read Greek. He can read whatever language. He knows what's coming. All right, let's land this airplane. How can we be ready to stand against Satan's schemes? How can we find help against Satan's schemes? Here's our summons this morning, and then we'll be done. Three things. Number one, I said this last week is number one because it is number one. The only way to stand against the schemes of the devil is we have to be born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Outside of that, ladies and gentlemen, young people, there's no hope. There's none. Bible says the only way we can find any help against Satan's strategies is by being in Christ. And that only happens by doing two things. One, surrendering and asking forgiveness for our sins and owning them. You can tell someone's owned their sin by the blame stops, the spin stops, and they own their sin. And number two, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope and our Savior. That's how you're born again. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes into us. Last week, I said a spiritual explosion takes place in a person the moment they're saved, and suddenly the power of God is alive in them, and they have the power to stand against the schemes of the devil. Then, as the Holy Spirit comes in, they have the power to stand and be alert against their devil, their enemy. Outside of salvation, there is no hope of resisting Satan's schemes. Number two, true Christians have authority over Satan because of the cross, over the devils because of the cross. Christ's death on the cross stripped Satan of his ultimate authority over Christians. He's still active. He's still alive. As Hal Lindsey wrote years ago, Satan is alive and well on planet earth. He is at the moment. But he lacks jurisdiction over believers. Why? Because of Colossians 2.15 and other verses like this. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, God, made them a spectacle overcoming them by the cross. So the authority of the demonic realm over a genuine spirit-filled person in Christ is nil. That doesn't mean they can't harass at times, but they don't have jurisdiction and authority over you if you know Christ. And thirdly, and lastly, Christians resist the devil by godly living. Why do I say that? Well, James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How? I always go to, well, how? The how is in Ephesians 6. How we resist the devil is in Ephesians 6. And let me, let me say this. A lot of people mention Ephesians 6, and then the next phrase that comes out of their mouth is something like spiritual warfare. The concept of spiritual battles in the Bible, the phrase spiritual warfare isn't even found in the Bible. The concept of spiritual resistance is found in Ephesians 6, and it doesn't come so much by rebuking the devil or power encounters or commanding demons. It comes by the daily life of holiness and obedience in the Christian life. Why do I say that? Because that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. He talks about taking up gospel promises, that's Bible, and prayer and immersion in the scriptures and focusing on our identity in Christ. That means that spiritual warfare, biblically, is about living the Christian life in daily godliness and obedience. That is spiritual warfare according to the Bible. That is the best plan of protection. And then 
summoning ourselves and reminding ourselves who we are in Christ, if you know Christ. I'm going to end with a quote from Martin Luther. I've used this a long time ago. I love it. This is, this is, a, this is Ephesians 6 put into practice by reminding ourselves who we are in Christ. Martin Luther, the great German monk, 500 years ago, did tremendous battle with the church in Rome, with the devil, with everyone around him. And he said this, my closing quote, when the devil comes knocking on the door of my heart, I will send Jesus to the door. And Jesus will say to the devil, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. I now live here. And the devil will see the nail prints on Christ's hands and will immediately flee. That, ladies and gentlemen, young people, that's spiritual warfare. That is what it means to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let me lead us in closing prayer and then we will sing. Father, we thank you for your word that is so clear and powerful. We don't stand against Satan because of anything we've done. We stand because of the finished work of Christ. And so we ask for that. Father, I pray for that protection over this congregation and other gospel preaching churches in our area. We are thankful for them. We pray for increase among their numbers. We pray for blessing on their pastors and leaders and protection over these congregations throughout our region that are staying faithful to the gospel. And we ask the same for our leaders. We thank you for godly elders here and godly staff and godly leaders in so many areas in our ministry. We thank you for our people that make up this family. And we ask, Father, that those here this morning who don't know Christ would have their resistance melted and be brought to the Savior through the Holy Spirit. As we now lift our voices, Father, hear us. Help us to sing from our hearts. Help us to hunger to know Christ and walk with him in daily holiness. In his name, amen.